The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. I'm delighted that we're joined for the Culture Club today by Catherine Prasivka, who is the author of her first novel, None of This is Serious, which is getting well-deserved rave reviews. Catherine, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about the novel. Yes, uh, it is, well, I think an interesting book. Um, In some ways, it's quite a small story, kind of a familiar story, just about a girl graduating college, doesn't really know what to do with her life. Everyone else has it figured out. But a large part of the novel takes place on social media. And also, spoiler, at the end of the first chapter, a crack of light opens in the sky. um, And we see her kind of try and deal with that through social media, kind of seeing how it kind of gets normalised. because we're just so used to things changing and then going back to normal. So trying to kind of deal with all that uncertainty and anxiety, which I think people can relate to after we've just had a pandemic. And I'll get back to the social media in a second, but this sort of crack of light in the sky, is this sort of a metaphor for global warming or what is it? Or is there a science fiction element to what you're doing? Because I know a lot of the choices you come to later, (laughs) there's a science fiction influence definitely there. Uh, Yes, I have a master's in fantasy literature from the University of Glasgow. So definitely I was drawing upon speculative fiction um, and the way that it can kind of make you look at reality in a new way uh, by kind of inverting it. The crack isn't supposed to be any one thing. It's more a stand in for that kind of change, that kind of uncertainty and how we then deal with it. Like, how do we rationalize global events? You know, you're scrolling through your phone and you see a picture of a dog. You see a joke. You see wildfires. You see, you know, war. You see all of this kind of melded together. And that does something to your brain. So I wanted an event that I could then push through social media. So it's not any one thing, but it's kind of that phenomenon. But the book also focuses a lot, isn't it, almost with sort of an obsessive use of social media. Yes, yes. I think I wanted to write a book where, you know, social media, like it wasn't the main driver of the plot, but it was a place where events happened. Because I think for young people like me and I mean, I think for everyone, like it's not just a young person issue, but a lot of the way that we live our lives is influenced by social media. You know, it's how you find a job. It's how you find somewhere to rent. It's how you get the news. It's how you have very real experiences that affect how you live your day to day life. But we're just kind of pretending, oh, it's not like it's not reality, but I think it very much is. So it's about that as well. Is any of this autobiographical? No, (laughs) I mean, I have to say that no. Um, But yeah, I think you spend five minutes talking to me, you realise I'm not quite like my main character. Uh, I never stop talking. She doesn't have any written lines of dialogue. So um, that, but I think it's something that I can definitely identify with and something that I was kind of fascinated by. So I wanted to put that in. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've been hearing from a lot of people is how they think I've kind of captured that uh, kind of brain melting aspect of of social media, the way that it kind of affects how you think about issues well, which is what I wanted to do. So I'm kind of happy about that. And how much time do you spend on social media? You know, you can get sort of a weekly digest and update sent to you (laughs) as to how many hours you spend on your phone. It scares me every week when I see my average daily time on my phone. How much is yours? It's a lot. I think normally it's about five or six hours. It's you about know. mine as well, yeah. yeah but, but I'm then... a lot older than you, so I have no <laughs> excuse. Well, yeah, but it's also a large part of my job now. You know, I have to post, I have to retweet, I have to... I've been making TikToks. <laughs> Not good ones, <laughs> but I've been trying. Um But yeah, it's a source of entertainment, of news, of communication. You know, I've got friends who live in different time zones in different countries. How do I, you know, keep in touch with them if not on my phone? So it's it's 
more than just a time sink. It is, again, a facet of life. But it's good to hear you've got friends that you keep in contact with because your main character in the book <laughs> doesn't have too many good friends, shall we say, or people well, who are good as her friends. I think, <laughs> that's an interesting comment. I think, I think she does have some good friends, but she is not in a position where she can see them as good friends. You know, she's very negative headspace. Um, yeah, it's it's about the book is about friendship for for you know good and bad reasons. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think it's going to be a massive hit. None of this is serious. Is the debut novel. So let's get to your choices for the Culture Club. We ask every guest uh, to nominate the first single they've ever bought, <laughs> which was obviously for an older generation than you being in your twenties. Well, what do you remember as the first piece of music that you remember getting? Well, um, I'll go with the embarrassing answer first because I've never been uh, afraid of embarrassing myself publicly, apparently. Uh, the first CD I ever bought was the High School Musical soundtrack complete with karaoke sing-along disc. <laughs> I bought it, I think I w- it was the first time I had money. Uh, I think I was in America. My um, dad is American and my was visiting my grandmother and she had given me $20 or something and I went into a shop and I thought I'd really like that you know at the time when I was young I didn't really have my own music taste I was just listening to what everyone else was listening to uh, my dad really likes the Beach Boys and the Beatles so it's kind of like those three in my childhood um, but the first CD I ever bought consciously as like a music choice I want to explore myself was the album Here Not There by Heathers who are like an Irish uh, duo and you'll know their song, Remember When, from that Discover Ireland ad about seven years ago. Oh, yes, yes. yes. Uh, that's not the track we have, though. Oh, well. Yeah, Forget Me Nots. Oh, that's also good. I also like that one. Oh, good. Well, that's the one we're going to hear. <laughs> Me not the lead single from the album Here Not There by Heathers. Do you still listen to that? Yeah, 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 I do. I th- like, uh, it was an album and I, the artist really meant a lot to me, I think, as a teenager. And I really like hearing female perspectives, you know, kind of authentic songs written by women about their experiences. And it kind of just transports me back to when I was 15, which is sometimes a, g- a good place to be, sometimes a very bad place to be, you know. Well, talking of strong women, we asked you for a favourite album, we asked you a favourite band or artist, and you merged it all in together. Taylor Swift. <laughs> um, okay, why? What does Taylor Swift do for you? Um, again, I've been listening to Taylor Swift since I was about 12, when her first song made its way over here. Um, and she has always written from a female perspective, you know, and it, as you know, for better and worse, um, 
as, you know, it's not always going to be a, a glowing perspective to write from, but I think it's authentic. And I think she is writing for women, which I think is important um, and has always had some amount of control over her image. Um, but she is not afraid of the emotions that women feel and putting them specifically into songs. So you kind of feel like you know her a little bit. Um, and because of that, when you listen to her music, you kind of think, oh, something similar happened to me, actually. And there's kind of almost a solidarity in that, which I think is um, good. And I used to listen to a lot more artists, uh, but during the pandemic, when my brain turned to goo and I couldn't quite possibly think of anything, I really wanted that kind of familiarity and that kind she of She was comfort. your comfort music. Yeah, exactly. And she was also very productive during the pandemic. So she produced two albums, uh, Folklore and Evermore. They're kind of like escapist manic fantasies <laughs> um, and really kind of honing in on creativity and I took a lot of inspiration from that when I was writing my debut novel I was kind of thinking well she's taken this energy and this time and produced something maybe I can do that too Well from the album Evermore here's Gold Rush If you were listening to her since the age of 12, she was very much country artist then. Yes. You've gone for her more modern stuff, though, have you, Rhoda? Does she's become more poppy? Um, well, this is, it's more kind of indie pop, indie folk, those two albums. Her poppiest album was 1989, which came out a couple of years ago. Um, I really kind of like the the indie pop uh, vibe, but she also brings in some country into some of the songs in those albums. She's always kind of experimented with genre and kind of and that's something that I take a lot of, of inspiration from as well kind of pulling from other places to create something new to express what you want to express um, there would have been a time in my life when I, I would have been embarrassed to be like my favourite artist is Taylor Swift because I think there's a way why there's a way that we have of maybe undermining or invalidating the things that teenage girls like because you know, oh it's not serious you know but I am fascinated by popular culture and how it kind of affects people like on a huge scale on a global scale now that maybe hasn't quite existed with the internet you know to this extent and that must be doing something you know there must be something really interesting going on there for you know I can talk to my friends who live in America and they're like oh I've just listened to the exact same song as you you know that's an interesting facet of the modern experience Did you see her playing at Crow Park? Uh, no, I wasn't in the country. Um, ah, so you haven't seen her play live? I have for her Speak Now tour in like 2011. <laughs> that far back? Yes. 
<laughs> I beat you there. I was in Croke Park. I saw her play. Uh, just before we get to gigs, though, uh, you also do like listening to Villagers or Lord. Yes, yes. Uh, again, that kind of indie sound. Uh, I think that Lord has tremendous lyricism, you know, again, like similar to Taylor Swift in the way of kind of capturing an experience. Um, and Villagers, I actually, I went to the same school as Conor O'Brien, uh, who is Villagers. Um, and I've been a fan since his first album came out, whenever that was. Um, and I think what all these artists do is kind of tell a good story. And that's something that I'm very much interested. I do not have a good musical ear. I am basically tone deaf. So I'm kind of looking at music for something else. And that is the storytelling aspect. What school was that? Uh, St. Conlitz. Okay. Ballsbridge in Dublin. Okay. Best gig you were at? Uh, God, I really should have thought about how embarrassed I'd be by everything that I submitted to you. Because uh, I don't go to that many gigs, actually, because, you know, I don't listen to that much music, if I'm being totally honest. Um, the best gig I was ever at was November 24th, 2009. That was the Jonas Brothers concert when I was 13. And it just exploded my brain. Like, it was just, imagine being a teenage girl seeing your favourite boy band and I was in the front row and actually just before the pandemic I was in Los Angeles visiting my grandmother again and I was just looking for something to do and don't you know the Jonas Brothers were playing the next day in the Hollywood Bowl and they had really cheap tickets because I was you know just going as a single person yes. uh, so I was able to get to the Hollywood Bowl it was like $40 uh, the women behind me were like Sarah are you alone would you like some of our wine <laughs> I was like yes like, how, do you, how do you know the Jonas Brothers <laughs> Um, and it was amazing. I kind of think about those two experiences and then the pandemic that happened afterwards. And I really felt like I wasn't sure what my life was going to look like, but I had this connection to my like teenage self. And I was like, oh, isn't it funny how these things come full circle? But then, of course, the circle immediately was flattened <laughs> by the pandemic. So, yeah, uh, the Jonas Brothers is the answer. <laughs> well, we don't have them from in Dublin. We do have them on their world to in Argentina from 2009. And this is BB Good. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I don't stand behind it as the best music choice, but as the emotion behind the event. How you know? have they aged when you saw them you, a decade later? Do you know, they have a different sound now. They broke up, That's the, as boy bands always do, and they have gone for kind of a softer uh, sound. Actually, I quite like, you know, if you're sitting in a cafe, there's nothing wrong with it. Catherine Prasivka is with us for the Culture Club, author of None of This is Serious. And we'll be going to our book choices and movie and television choices when we come back for the second part of the Culture Club. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM, it all happens here. Welcome back to the Culture Club here on The Last Word and Today FM. Katrin Prasivka is the author of None of This is Serious, her debut novel, which is getting enormous attention deservedly. But let's go to your other choices. And before we get to books, movies, you've nominated a number of movies, a number of which are animated. 
Yes, yes. Uh, I really, really like animation. I think, you know, like with fantasy, people often think it's for children, but there are things that you can do in animation that you can't do in realism. You know, there are ways of um, telling stories and representing characters and adding emotion to scenes that just would look hokey and kind of out of place in realism. So two movies that I picked are from Cartoon Saloon. They're actually Irish, um, Song of the Sea and Wolfwalkers. Wolf- Both I think were Oscar nominated, weren't they? Yes, yeah. And they're just phenomenal. They're, you know, Irish fantasy is really hard to write, I think, because fantasy is all about playing with expectation. And I think a lot of people don't have firm expectation for Irish mythology. You know, people know Salmon of Knowledge, something, something, Cucullin, something, something. But when you bring in more of the lore, I think uh, people don't really know what it means, right? Um, So how do you explain the myth, but then also tell a new story so people are kind of along the journey with you? And I think Cartoon Saloon do it beautifully. And they tell really rich stories about, you know, grief and about loss and so much heart in them. And they're beautifully animated. So I just, I love both of them. Um, and everything they've done. We've an audio extract from Wolfwalkers in which Robin, an apprentice wolf hunter, meets Maeve the Wolfwalker. You're, you're a... Uh, Wolfwalker. So what? We should thank you. Why? I saved your life. Saved me? You bit me. Well, you kicked me in the gob enough times. Well, you were attacking me. I was trying to get you out of that trap. And anyway, you came into my woods. Your woods? They're our woods. Your wolves are attacking the woodcutters. And the sheep. They should be staying closer to the town. And so should you, townie. Now give us a look at you. Are you seeing things? Oh, get off me. Use your smell. Oh, stop it. Smell like townie. Any extra fur? Oh, that's mine. Get away. No. Stop moving and let me fix it before it's too late. Hey, get off me. Will you stop? Let me fix it. Ugh. Fine. Off you go. You did heal Merlin. Yeah, I fixed you and your bird and saved your life. You're welcome, Tony. Bye. No, wait, who's that? Is she your... your mother? <sighs> you better go or the wolves will eat you. What? But I don't... Oh, no, too late. They're going to eat you. No! Wolfwalkers there. Catherine, you've also gone for a Marvel franchise movie. Yes, uh, Thor Ragnarok, which I think for anyone who's a fan of Marvel should recognise as their best movie. Um, And what I love about it is it takes the genre, the superhero movie, and and everything that comes along with it, which is, again, that kind of playfulness, that ability to have epic visuals and an amazing soundtrack and these really kind of strong characters, and then uses that to tell a story that's actually about colonialism and dealing with maybe like the legacy of nationhood and what it means to be a people which is not something that you'd expect at all and it's also tremendously funny uh, I think it's kind of a, a genre defining movie um, Marvel I think can be hit and miss and I wouldn't recommend anyone who has not already watched however many 60 movies <laughs> catch up but definitely definitely this is also a standalone movie you can just watch and it's tremendously enjoyable Okay let's move on to television we'll get back to books in a moment because you've given us a large number of television shows. You clearly watch quite a bit of television. I watch a lot of television, uh, particularly when I'm writing, actually. I find it kind of uh, gives my brain something to focus on so I can kind of, my hind brain can get a good idea, you know, if you just watch something. 
going back to childhood, you're far from the first person in this slot who has mentioned <laughs> Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes, yeah, a large part of my personality, I would say, was formed watching uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer as a child and then coming back to it around the age of like 13 or 14. Uh, I actually wrote a full-length novel from the age of about 13 to 17 that was kind of a response to Buffy. Um, it will never see the light of day. Why not? Ever. It's very bad. <laughs> Could it not be rewritten? <laughs> well, maybe, maybe. But uh, I was very inspired by it. And I think that there are, you know, um, with Buffy, again, she's a, a strong female character who is exceeding expectations, you know, which I think was good to have growing up. Let's hear a little bit from Buffy the Vampire Slayer where Buffy finds out that she's the chosen one, the Slayer. So, I'm like, Dad, you want me to go to the dance in an outfit I've already worn? Why do you hate me? Is Tyler taking you? Where were you when I got over Tyler? He's of the past. Tyler would have to crawl on his hands and knees to get me to go to the dance with him. Which actually he's supposed to do after practice, so I'm going to wait. Okay, see you later. Bye. Call me. Call me. Call me. I will. Buffy Summers? Yeah. Hi. What? I need to speak with you. You're not from Bullocks, are you? Because I meant to pay for that lipstick. There isn't much time. You must come with me. Your destiny awaits. I don't have a destiny. I'm destiny free, really. Yes, you have. You are the chosen one. You alone can stop them. Who? The vampires. I don't think that's the first time we played that, actually. We did <laughs> that one before. It's a good clip. You also, and I have to admit, I shouldn't know this, but I do know Sabrina the Teenage Witch <laughs> from having what, been on why in the room you know with it? all my children watching it at various stages as they were growing up. But I believe you're a big fan of that and the chilling adventure of Sabrina. Uh, big fan. I know a lot about them, I would say, rather. I think they're, they're seminal texts, if you will. I did my master's thesis on the figure of the witch and how she represents attitudes to women in different um, time periods, basically. And I think Sabrina the Teenage Witch is the perfect kind of uh, 90s pop feminism capsule of just, you know, I'm a teenage girl, I've got glittery magic, I'm going to use it to succeed in a very narrow sphere. Whereas The Chilling Adventures, the kind of 2010s reinvention is a lot more kind of, uh, I am trying to take down systems that exist that uh, shouldn't. I will say I was very disappointed with the way The Chilling Adventures panned out. I thought it had a lot of potential. Um, let me write it. Uh, <laughs> but I had a, a lot of uh, ideas, which is why I chose it to kind of represent, you know, that aspect of feminism. But it didn't pan out the way that I wanted to. But this is the thing with popular culture and when you're kind of studying it and talking about it, which is that it doesn't matter whether or not necessarily it's good or bad, but the effect it has and the stories that are relevant at that time. OK, well, you also have on your list Gilmore Girls. Which version? Yes. Uh, what do you mean which version well it came back recently oh it did yeah Yeah. Uh, yeah the first one the original and what's good about having watched Gilmore Girls from a young age is I think every time you go back and watch it you relate to a different character I think when you're you know, young, you watch it and you go, isn't Rory great? And then you're a bit older and you go, no, Rory's not actually that great. I like Lorelai. And then you watch it a third time and you go, no, it's Emily Gilmore. You know, these are all the women in the family of different generations. Um, and I think that is something to do with, you know, maturing, but maybe also how the story has aged, you know. 
Okay, and you also have the Umbrella Factory and Robbie Sheehan did the Culture Club for us last year as well. Here he came in and did it. What do you like about the Umbrella Academy? Uh, I like that it is, I think, similar to Thor Ragnarok is that it takes what is good about kind of superheroes and, you know, presents it in a new way. I think it manages to be both dark and funny and have that in like a nice balance. Whereas I think sometimes when you're writing those kind of stories, either you go a bit slapstick or you go like really realistic, gritty, uh, which is not what I like. I like the kind of playfulness. And you say you love to hate Riverdale. Yes, I was talking about this to my friend earlier and she says I'm probably one of three people in Ireland still watching Riverdale. It's going on and on and on. Um, It is just perfect kind of brain food you know you sit there and you're not thinking a single thought and you're watching it and it is like well shot and kind of put together but they basically just run whatever stories they want to um for for better and worse um and it is just you know I'd love to be a fly on the wall in the writer's room I would love to or be part of the writer's room or be part yeah call me (laughs) okay and you also gave us over the garden wall which we have a clip from what's that about Uh, It is a short animated series about two brothers wandering uh, the woods um, and encountering different things. It is a kind of, I suppose, fairy tale retelling. And I think what it does so well is that I think children will watch it and find it funny and adults will watch it and find it scary. I think there's something about children's media or media towards children where like, you know, when I was a kid, I would just accept a lot of things. I read his dark materials and it's like, oh, God's a character. That's totally fine. Now, as an adult, I go and I read it and I go, oh, there's a lot more going on than I first thought. And I think that is really kind of true to what a fairy tale is and should be. Kind of dark, kind of interesting, but also there's like a lesson to be learnt after it. So from over the garden wall where the brothers Wirt and Greg are trapped in a mysterious world, in this clip, Wirt tries to save his brother from the beast. Give me my lantern. Your lantern? No way, we need this thing. Yeah, I'm keeping this. I have to get Greg home. Your brother is too weak to go home. He will soon become part of my forest. I won't let that happen. Well then, perhaps we better make a deal. Deal? Ooh. I can put his spirit in the lantern. As long as the flame stays lit, he will live on inside. Take on the task of lantern bearer, or watch your brother perish. I'm here. Okay. (gasps) Bert! Wait, that's dumb. What? That's dumb. I'm not just going to wander around in the woods for the rest of my life. I'm trying to help you. You're not trying to help me. You just have some weird obsession with keeping this lantern lit. It's almost like your soul is in this lantern. to see true darkness. Are you... Are you... (gasps) Don't! Don't! Okay, which brings us to your choice of books. And you've given us three novelists. So I suppose as a theme is developing, will we start with Terry Pratchett? Yes, I think that would be wise. (laughs) Terry Pratchett, you know... The book that I put down, Equal Rights, is, I think, 
basically responsible for me writing my book and that it started this kind of cascading process of I picked it up, I loved it, I wrote my undergrad dissertation on it. My undergrad dissertation led me to my master's in fantasy. My master's in fantasy gave me all of these ideas I wanted to explore in my novel, which when I picked up Equal Rights, I didn't think this is going to be it. <laughs> um, but uh, it really expanded my expectations of the fantasy genre when I read it. It is about a young girl who is accidentally gifted wizard powers and in the world there are wizards and witches and they're very separate you know the witches uh they have like herbal magic nature magic that kind of thing and the wizards attend an academy and she says well I have wizard powers I want to go to the academy and they say no you have to be a witch and she goes show me where it's written why does the lore say that I don't believe that prove it and it's about her kind of breaking down those gender norms and I thought the way that those tropes were kind of played around with was fascinating. Um, I love Terry Pratchett, all of his books. I just think um, really play around with what fantasy is, where it comes from, how you can create it, you know, because it's not just about like magic. Sometimes the driving force of the novel is rock and roll or sometimes it's, you know, uh, just belief as a concept and how those things occupy the same space as magic in our in our consciousness. I think it's fascinating. I'm a huge Terry Pratchett fan. Tell us about Madeline Miller and her book Song of Achilles and Circe. Circe. Circe, sorry. Um, uh, I need my glasses. <laughs> <laughs> um, these are both myth retellings uh, and they do exactly what I think a good myth retelling should do, which is expand the story doesn't change any of the details whatsoever, but offers a slightly new perspective on them. So Circe is uh, the witch living on an island that Odysseus encounters and turns all of his men into pigs. That's kind of how we know her. And what Madeline Miller does in Circe is tell the story of Circe to the point where we really sympathise with her, which we go, yes, she should turn those men into pigs and completely then changes whether or not she's a villain or a hero in the story. I think it's it's phenomenal. Um, and then the Song of Achilles expands the uh, relationship between Achilles and his kind of charioteer, Patroclus. Okay, and then one other novel you've picked out, the Ishiguro novel. Uh, Clara and the Sun. I think it is just a beautiful novel um, that, again, I'm gonna, I talk a lot about fantasy, I'm aware, but I just love it so much. And I think uh, what Clara and the Sun does is this thing that fantasy can do where it takes you out of the real, it takes you out of the expected and takes you out of the normal and then makes you look at it in a new way. So by it's it's about this um, synthetic like robot friend that a young girl gets, and the point of view is from the robot. And through that point of view, we just explore what it means to be human, what it means to love and to lose, and all those kind of things. I don't have time to play a clip from it because we're nearly out of time. So could you just briefly give us, are you, do you listen to podcasts? Yes, I listen to a lot of podcasts all of the time. Okay. Um, my favourites are Maintenance Phase. Which What's that? It is a podcast about kind of diet fads and myths and kind of, you know, like the health industry um, or whatever. And it really just kind of assesses how orientated towards thinness our culture is and how that is a really, really negative thing. And we all need to kind of think about it. Um, another podcast I like is You're Wrong About, which just uh, looks at you know, um, cultural phenomena that you think you know about, but you don't, um, and actually gives you the full story, which is really handy for someone of my age, because there's so many things that I kind of know, but I don't really know. 
Um, and then the last one is The Irish Passport. I really like that's an Irish podcast about all things Irish history, culture, politics. And they're doing some amazing podcasts at the moment. Um, they had an interview with their Ukrainian woman who speaks fluent Irish. That was just like the last uh, okay. uh, episode I thought was amazing. Um, and again, it's really useful for me to, you know, know more about Ireland because there's so much we actually don't talk about or we're not explicitly told that I don't know. So it's 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 really good for that. You've been a great guest and congratulations on the publication of None of This Is Serious as your debut novel and we look forward to many more books in the years to come which I suspect, judging by whether they'll have a fantasy edge to them. <laughs> Catherine Prasivka, thank you very much for joining us. The Last Word with Matt Cooper Weekdays from 4.30 Today